0: And we're going to take a look at 1 John chapter 2 this morning. And uh, if you're not familiar, there's a big book of John. And then there's three little Johns, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And to get there, you just go all the way to the end of your Bible, to Revelation. And then you make a left turn, and you'll pass the little book of Jude, 3 John, 2 John. And we're going to hang out in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, over the last seven weeks, we've been talking about Uh, What does it mean to be God's people? God's people are supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to look different. They're supposed to be unique. They're supposed to be uh, different than the world and the culture from which God draws them. They're supposed to look different. Uh, And so we've started this series um, based on this idea that uh, God has His people and they are distinguished. They're distinct They're different. They look different than the world looks. And We we read Malachi chapter 3. There was a remnant of people that listened to God and they feared God and they responded in faith and uh, repentance and obedience. And and as they did that, um, the Lord said, those are my people. He used that phrase, those are my people. We contrasted that with Hosea, the prophet, and in the book of Hosea, uh, he told him to name one of his children Lo-Ami. You probably will never forget that. I've said it for seven weeks in a row. Uh, Lo-Ami means these are... Not my Way to go, kids. I knew you were listening. These are not my people, right? They say they're my people. They do things that look like my people, but in their hearts, they're far from me, and they're not close to me. They're not with me. These are not my people, And so God is saying that there is a difference between the redeemed, between the born again, between the saved, between Christ followers, between those who say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, and those who aren't. There's a difference. There's a difference between God's people and those who are not God's people. And the reason why we've taken this seven weeks to do this uh, topical study Is that currently in our culture there appears to be a sifting? There appears to be a sifting where it's not necessarily easy to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower these days. And churches are being sifted. Um, You'll see uh, not just in our church, but not just in our area, but around the nation, churches are are becoming smaller. It's it's. Uh, The cultural wind is in our face. The current is hard against us. And it's more difficult to walk with Jesus than it ever was before. It's very easy right now to compromise what makes you a Christian. That the Bible is true. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to heaven but through Him. It's very easy to compromise. It's very easy to not stand up and be counted with Jesus. It's very easy to slide away To strain against the strong cultural currents that make it difficult. And so we've been talking about what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What distinguishes you from the culture? And in the process of that, we've looked at all the the benchmarks of what it means to look like a, a Christian. What does it mean biblically? We're going to do this series one more time, and we've got one more message next week, and then we're going to take about eight to ten weeks to look through the books of First and Second Peter. So if you want to jump on that eight chapters, you can read it twice before this first sermon ever hits if you are in a chapter-a-day rhythm. First and Second Peter is where we'll be two weeks from now. But last week we read 1 Timothy chapter 4, and in that passage it says the Spirit tells you that there will be those in later days who will depart from the faith. They're going to be among us, and they're going to walk away from us. And today is a continuation of that idea. And so let's pray together, and we're going to talk about what does it mean to remain in Christ. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is truth without mixture of error. That for thousands of years, your revelation, your revealed word has been painstakingly preserved by your Holy Spirit and by your people. They have carefully kept your word so that we have a reliable guide for faith and practice. We thank you that we don't have to doubt the authenticity of your word, but that we can It can stand up to scrutiny and pass the test as the inspired Word of God. And so we thank You for it. We thank You that just by a few words, the Bible says, You created everything we see out of nothing. And so we know that just a little word from You today could change everything in our life. All You have to do is speak. Your servants are listening. So we pray that Your Holy Spirit would come among us and would... um, Speak to us by your word, that your truth would be highlighted, that we may be changed, that we may be shaped by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're talking about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of eternal security. And it's a good doctrine. It's a doctrine that we find all over the pages of Scripture And so we want to affirm that in light of what we talked about last week, that in later days, some will depart from the faith. That even in our own culture, even in our own churches, even in our own towns, even in our own congregation here, if we look around, there will be some in the room that won't be here in the faith a decade or two from now. That you will watch as the people you're with, worshiping with, maybe not in this church, and people will shift to different churches, but the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4 that people will walk away from the faith altogether. You will see your friends and family members depart from the faith. And so the opposite of that today is what it means to be a true believer is that you will persevere to the end. Some like to say it this way, you will be preserved by God until the end. He will preserve you, He will give you endurance, you will run the race, you will finish strong in the faith by the end of your life, and that's how you know that you're a genuine believer, a genuine follower of Christ, is that from the beginning to the end, you are with Christ in the faith, trusting in Him for your salvation. I don't know if you saw the news this week, but there was this wild uh, event that took place in the Lehigh Valley with a cross-country runner. Did anybody see that? This college kid is just running cross-country. I mean, it's just in a field, and there's dozens of runners in front and behind him. And just out of nowhere, a deer plows this kid over, and he it looks like he does a flip. His feet go up over his head. He lands on his back. He just gets destroyed by this deer running through a field, just completely blindsided. And, and he gets up uh, and he sort of checks himself and he watches the deer and everybody's sort of stunned that this guy just got plowed. And the uh, end of the news story was that he finished with <laughs> like battered, bruised ribs and uh, extreme bruises. I mean, this guy was a warrior for finishing the race. And and he was my inspiration this week, right? That, that no matter what life throws at you, no matter what comes in your way, no matter what trials, no matter what difficulties take place in your life, as you endure through trials, as you persevere in the faith, that proves the genuineness of your faith. A faith that isn't tested isn't a real faith. A faith that is easy and comfortable and smooth is no faith at all. But like the cross-country runner who finished the race, we must be the ones who finish. As we look at what distinguishes who God's people are, they are finishers. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, sometimes called the doctrine of eternal security, is clearly found in 1 John chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, let's read together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18-19 through 19 says this. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been born of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they are, that they all are not of us. Two little verses clearly show us how to make sense of those who depart from the faith. Last week we talked about how to make sure you're not a departer, how to make sure you are in the faith, how to make sure you remain in the faith, from First Timothy four. Today we want to just point out and highlight this doctrine of eternal security because it can be confusing. We want to talk about what it's not and what it is. And we want to show you why it's a beautiful biblical gift of God. That He will hold us to the end. That He will strengthen you through trials. That He will allow you to experience trials and difficulties and hardships and He will preserve you. If you wanted to put this on a coffee mug or on a inspirational card or something. It would look like footprints, right? During the hard times, I saw one set of footprints in the sand and it was during that time that He carried you. It's that kind of idea that God is by your side and He's with you and He will help you through difficulties. He will help you through trials. I can't look around the room and not see someone who isn't suffered or is suffering through a trial and that their faith is being tested and made more genuine, or has been tested and made more genuine. That's what makes you beautiful in Christ. Not that your life is free of trouble, but that He has strengthened you and been faithful to you through trial and through difficulty. So let's make sense of this. First, let's get some context of these two verses. Just a little text in background. This is the Apostle John writing towards the end of his life, possibly around 90 A.D., He's the last known apostle at this time, probably. Uh, he is writing as an elder, as the last apostle possibly, to the churches where he served, possibly in Ephesus. And John is already coming up against uh, what's called the Gnostic heresy. Right, don't tune me out too quick. The Gnostic heresy was this wild philosophical idea That permeated the Roman culture at that time that said all physical material is evil, and the only thing good is the spirit realm. And so, when Gnostic philosophy came into Christianity, it obviously had some real easy, uh, a real easy place for some people who are weak minded to kind of land, right? Because Jesus was spiritual and He was resurrected. And so the obvious temptation was to take a step and say Jesus wasn't a real person. He was just a spirit. He just sort of floated through temptation and that's why He was perfect, because He wasn't a real person. And so John is writing to combat that. If you just flip back a chapter, um, look at what chapter 1 says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and touched with our hands. Right, why is he going out of, out of control saying these things about Jesus? He's saying we touched Him, we saw Him, we heard Him, we were around Him, we lived with Him. He was not a ghost. He was a real flesh and spirit person. He was a real person just like us. And so he's describing how he's uh, making sense against this Gnostic philosophy, which was an emphasis on spirituality and not on physical the combination. First John also contains five tests so that you can know that you are a Christian or not. First John 5:11 through 13 says, and this is the testimony, uh, those who have the son of God have life, those who do not have the son of God do not have life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know you have eternal life. This isn't something that you just have to sort of grope around in the darkness wondering, am I Christian or am I not? Am I saved or am I not? Am I a genuine believer or not? He says you can know, and there are five clear tests in First John alone. There are 19 clear tests in the New Testament. God does not want you wandering in ambigu- ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for me to say. God does not want you wandering in darkness, wondering, I, maybe I'm a Christian, maybe I'm not. Right? He wants you to know. Ephesians 1 says, I have placed my spirit in you as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. Those are words of security. He wants you to know. And so John, in the midst of that, this is one of those tests. Verses 18-19. through 19. One of those five tests, this is one of them. If you remain... You are in the faith. If you don't remain, you are not. So let's back up a second and look at 1 John 18. He says, 2 18, he says uh, in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. So let's pause here. They were in the church. They were in the fellowship. They were worshiping. They were with them. They were coming to church. They were maybe uh, serving in some way. Maybe they were Taking up offerings, maybe they were helping with the distribution of food, maybe they were helping with widows, maybe they were um, greeting, maybe they were singing, maybe they were speaking, maybe they were reading scripture. They could have been in a small group, they could have been discipling people, they were with them, eating, fellowshipping, they were in the body of believers. They were there. And John says they were with us, but there was a time when they went out. Now that was last week's sermon. Sermon. I posted it last night. If you want to recap and listen to it again. It's, it's the idea that they were with us, but they departed. Just like the Spirit says, what Paul wrote to Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that they were with us. They were in the church, and now they're gone. Now they're not of us. John writes, they were with us, but now they're not. And the reason is because they were never really of us. That's scary. That's scary. It's kind of scary that they would be in us, that they would be around us, that they would be in the church, that they would be walking with us for a time, and then they they would depart. And John says it's because they were never of us. They were never of us. Look, Look at this idea in verse 19. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become what? It might become plain. We don't have to guess. If they depart from the faith, if they walk away from Jesus, if they walk away from the church, if they no longer live as a Christ follower, we can see that they have departed and it will be plain to us that they were really never of us. They were really never a believer in the first place. You say, How is this possible? How can people be in the church like this and and maybe be singing, maybe be preaching, maybe be listening, maybe shouting amen, maybe giving, maybe doing all these things, and they were never really believers in the first place? How is that possible? Well, we found out last week that there's deception involved, right? There's deception involved. In 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15, um, Paul is describing these super apostles who are making a mess. He says it in air quotes probably, these super apostles that are making a mess of the doctrine and dividing the church. And he says, as for them, I don't know these false apostles, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's terrifying. That there would be people who are speakers, who are preachers, who are teachers, who are evangelists, who are uh, maybe bearing fruit in ministry, and maybe uh, have huge followings, that they would be deceiving people. But that's not too hard for us to believe, right? Can't you think of dozens of famous pastors and teachers and evangelists and people who are departing left and right? Can't we see that in our own culture? This isn't too hard to believe, is it? Why do they do that? Look at verse 14, or just listen to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it's no surprise if his servants, Paul continues, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their end will correspond to their deeds. So it's in their deeds, it's in their lifestyle that you're going to see the truthfulness of whether they believe or not. This is scary. They, they, were, they thought they were in it. They thought they were with us. Why? How is this possible? Jesus taught it really clearly in Matthew 13, and it's worth a minute for me to read Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus has told uh, several parables. He's told His disciples the reason why He tells parables, and then He's uh, spoke about the parable of the sower and the weeds and the wheat. And he talks about um, the parable of the pearl of great value. And uh, he's going through all these parables. And in one of these parables, he began to explain. And in verse 26, one of his parables is this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Let me just pause here in the middle of this parable, because there's an interesting uh, note in the ESV study Bible. The weeds here. There was a particular kind of weed called a darnel. It's a weedy, rye grass that looks similar to wheat. Now listen. It had a poisonous black seed which resembles wheat in its early growth, but it is easily distinguished after it's matured. Isn't that telling? And any attempt... To gather the weeds would poison and endanger the wheat because the roots would be intertwined with those of the wheat. So we have weeds and we have wheat, and they're almost indistinguishable. One is poison and one is good. Jesus just said that. One is a good seed. Verse 27 And the servant of Matthew 13. Verse 27, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us to go gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He tells a couple of other parables, and then later in verse 36, he explains it. Worth the second of our time. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Hey, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Right? This is a little tricky. We don't get it. What's happening? Are you really saying that an enemy would come and sow weeds in the church? And so just to make sure, Jesus answers and says, The one who sows the good seed is me, the Son of Man. I'm the one who's building my church, sowing the Word, purchasing to myself Christ followers and believers. I am sowing good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels." Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom um, all causes of sin and all the lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, He who has ears to hear. Not a very politically correct message, Jesus, right? You have to be so explicitly clear This is one of those passages that we don't like to talk about. Jesus is talking about fiery furnaces and weeds and poisonous weeds and all these terrible things that are going to happen at the coming of the kingdom and the great day of judgment. And it should be sobering to us. It should be sobering that within the church, within the church as a whole, the big C church, that there would be unbelievers and believers, and they're almost indistinguishable, but one is a poisonous seed, and one is a son or a daughter of light. Back to 1 John chapter 2. We see the doctrine of security here. The second phrase, conditional clause, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If then. It's a conditional clause. If this is true, then this is true. If they remained in the church, if they remained in the faith, not in the church, but if they remained in the faith, then they would be one of us. But because they left, it proves that they weren't. If they had been a genuine believer, they would have stayed and persevered and been preserved until the end. Last Two weeks ago, I shared my testimony. I meet with about 30 pastors and uh, ministers in our greater region area. Um, And we were talking about soteriology and the doctrine of salvation, and and we were kicking this around for a couple of hours, talking about all these ideas about when a person gets saved and how do we communicate the gospel clearly. And we had this challenge of how would you share the gospel in five words? What would this look like? And it was a, a great discussion uh, toward the end of it, in front of the group, I said, when did I get saved? I was an atheist with all these problems, and I, one night I had the, the complete end of my line. I couldn't take it any longer, and I cried out and said, if there's a God somewhere, you have to help me because I can't live like this anymore. Did I get saved then when I cried out to the Lord? Romans 10, 9-10 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then the next day, a stranger showed up at my door, and he brought his Bible, and he shared with me the gospel, and he told me who Jesus was, and he told me how I was a sinner, and Jesus died on the cross for me, and he, he introduced me to Jesus and asked me if I would like to give my life to him, and I said yes, and I responded to the gospel at 1520 Pecan Street in Norman, Oklahoma at 8.30 p.m. February twentieth, 1991. I know the moment and the spot. Every time I go by there, I drive by and I take a picture, right? And I'm just, I always want to see that place because it holds significance for me. I know it where I got saved. Did I get saved there? Was it the night before? Was it on the porch? About four months later, I'm in a, a Christian camp and I'm listening to a speaker and he's talking about repentance and righteousness and how repentance is necessary. And at that point, I said, Lord, all these things that I'm doing, it's wrong. I'm still doing this and that, and, and I'm going to quit from here forward. I'm just going to walk with you and not do any of this. And I repented. Did I get saved then? And the group kicked it around. They asked, when did you get saved? One pastor said, in eternity past, you were elected. You were saved in eternity. God chose you from the foundations of the world. Yes, that's true. One pastor said, when you cried out, Romans 10, 9, 10, he's quoting scripture, and a few others said, yes, that was it. Another said, when you responded to the gospel the next night, that's when you put your faith, that's when you were regenerated, when you were born again. Another said, it was when you repented. And one wise pastor said, you will be saved if you persevere till the end. see, we fight the good fight and I never look, you never say I was saved when I walked an aisle or when I prayed a prayer in my bedroom with my parents or when I, my moment of salvation doesn't necessarily look backward at an event. My moment of salvation, the Bible describes it as you were saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. It's yes and we can't necessarily untangle it. (laughs) But we have to keep entrusting ourselves to the one who keeps us, Jude 24 says. The one who is able to keep you. You fight the good fight. You finish the race. You cross the line. Let me tell you what the doctrine of eternal security does not say. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where the deception is. Some people would say that the doctrine of eternal security says that once you pray a prayer or walk an aisle, or get baptized, or have a moment, like I had, that you can go the rest of your life and live any way you want to, and that you will always be saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that you can live any way you want to, that you can persist in disobedience, that you can depart from the faith, that you can walk away from Jesus, that you prayed a magical prayer at some age, at some point, and you walked with Him for a while, and then you left the body, you left the church, you left, you begin to live on your own as you would, as though Jesus weren't even real, as though the Bible weren't a guide for your life. You can watch, walk in such a way that your life more resembles the world than it does Christ, and that is where the doctrine of eternal security gone wrong is, is bad. It's bad for anyone to be deceived to think that they're saved because they prayed a prayer at one time, because they walked with the Lord for a while. But if they live their life continuously walking away from Him, that is not what the doctrine of eternal security means. It's for those who remain in the faith, in Christ, that John 15, remain in me and I in you. Those who remain in me will bear fruit. Those who don't are cut off and burned in the fire. Jesus said Matthew 7.21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, speaks to the Lordship that res- results from making Jesus Lord of your life. Listen, especially kids. Praying a prayer of salvation is good. It's the, it's the place to start. But just because you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or, or had a moment at one point in your life doesn't mean that you're always saved. It's for those who stay in the faith and persevere in faith and continue to walk in Christ, now, lest you misunderstand me that this is a, I have to grind it out and work my own salvation, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that He preserves you. He keeps you. He gives you the endurance. He's the one who calls you after, after you stray. You will wander, and He's the one who will call you back. But your deeds will demonstrate salvation or lostness. Read Galatians 5. There's the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And one of those fruits come from one of those trees. And Paul is extremely clear about which of those two trees produce which kinds of fruit. Galatians 5, you should read. So, what do you do with application here? Let me just give you a couple things. If you were just to scan the Bible for the word endurance, especially in the New Testament, endurance, overcome, run the race, perseverance, just you'll find a wealth of information on how to run the race well, how to endure, how to keep the faith, how to persevere. Jesus said to all the churches, To him who has ears, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres. Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I I will receive the crown of life. There is a a perseverance, endurance idea all throughout the New Testament. Persevere. Persevere. Second thing, don't judge too hastily. A sermon like this can have a negative effect if you don't sort of phrase it in the right way. You can be tempted uh, to look around you and not within. This is a message for you, not for you to say, I don't think so and so is saved. I think he's a weed. Or I think that's a weed. I can yeah. this is not for you to be Mr. Judgmental, Mrs. Self-Righteous. This is not that, this is not that. Even George Whitfield, when he was approached after a big meeting, a large gathering, Thousands of people responded to the gospel. Somebody said, how many people got saved? He said, I have no idea. I should know within a year or longer. That's the kind of wisdom that, that we want to understand, is that salvation, the righteousness, the, the fruit of the, the seed that was sown in your life, will have an effect. Because a person prayed a prayer, because a person uh, was baptized, because a person was in church for a while, or was in Bible study for a while, listen, Don't be too hasty to judge whether they're saved or unsaved. Time will bear those things out. Time will bear those things out by their behavior. Don't be too hasty. But at the same time, be discerning. Be discerning. Listen closely with with a mind trained for truth. Like the Bereans, they tested everything. Don't just swallow everything I say. Even my words, you must look at them through the lens of Scripture. Is it true? Is it not? Is what he's saying right? Is it not? I had a woman come up to me uh, six years ago and say, you don't believe in that heresy of once saved, always saved, do you? And I said, well, let's go to the Word. Let's just see what the Word has to say. And we walked through uh, several passages, Second Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 8-13. through 13. Uh, We walked through Jude 24 and 25, 2 Peter 1. John 6, Jesus says no one can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 27, uh, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Uh, we walked through um, that no one is righteous, not even one. And we talked about uh, if there's nothing you could do to gain your salvation. What could you do to lose your salvation? If we could lose our salvation, we would, right? we would. We would blow it if we could. But thanks be to God that He's the one who saves us and preserves us. And so if you mean uh, random lady in the illustration. If you mean, um, the, do I believe in the heresy of once saved, always saved? I don't believe it in the sense that if you pray a prayer and live any way you want to, that you'll you can expect to be redeemed. I think if you pray a prayer and live any way you want to, you can expect. Listen close. You can expect hell. I mean, I, I just, Jesus said it. I don't want to soften his words. He said the the weeds will be cut apart and thrown into a fiery furnace. And so, so I don't want to. I don't want to offend you by my words, but I don't want to soften Jesus' words. But if you pray a prayer and think you're a believer and walk away from the faith and live any way you want to, you can expect hell. I mean, That's just what he said. And I would be a terrible messenger of the Word if I tried to soften his words. So don't be too hasty. Remain in the faith. And the last thing is this. Don't be too hard on yourself if you struggle and if you battle against sin and as you wage war against sin, if there are victories and if there are defeats. We all love the Robert Robertson hymn, Come Thou Fount, because it says, We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We, um, this article was written by John Bloom, and he said, We all understand this. Prone to wander. We all keenly feel our proneness to wander from the God we love. And we all want this terrible proneness to wander to stop, don't we? Don't we hate that? this wandering in and wandering out and and this heart that leads us astray. But we're grateful for the God who preserves us and calls us back. John Bloom of Desiring God gives us this insight. What does losing our proneness to wander look like? How do we decrease our proneness to wander? And he gives us this great insight. God has left plenty of mystery in how He keeps us from stumbling and how He presents us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. There's mystery in how He keeps us. Don't you just wonder how you wake up believing? <laughs> you wake up persevering. You wake up and it, His mercies are new every day and you find re, your faith is renewed. There's mystery in that. But listen, he says it's not all mysterious. From Genesis to Revelation, we find a consistent element present in the lives of persevering saints of God. And it's captured in this brief sentence in Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your, your word. What does that mean? What cured the psalmist's proneness to wander? Or at least decreased it. Bloom continues, The psalmist's proneness to wander. What cured it? Affliction. If the writer of Psalm 119 was working with Robert Robertson on composing Come Thou Fount, he may have suggested the last sentence to read something more like this. Here's my heart, O take and break it, so I love thy courts above. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis used when comforting a suffering friend, God uses affliction as a severe mercy to help keep His saints from going astray. A severe mercy. Don't be too hard on yourself when you stray. But walk in fear and trembling. and Don't stray too long. Don't ignore the voice that calls you back. And don't disregard the severe mercy that He's giving you through affliction. Do you feel afflicted? Do you feel tempted? Do you feel like you're bearing a burden that's really hard? It tells you, the Scriptures tell us, that it is for endurance that trials come. So that you may persevere through those things, and that your faith of greater worth than gold will be tested and proved genuine. Your faith will be proved. You will be saved as you cross the finish line of faith. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this wonderful, wonderful doctrine that tells us that You will keep us. It's not up to us to keep ourselves entirely, but it is... You who give us the grace and the ability to endure and to persevere through trials, through difficulties, as we preached and talked about a few weeks ago with the persecuted church. They are not praying that persecution will end. They're praying that they would be bold in the face of persecution. They're not asking for the trials to go away. They're embracing you in the midst of a trial. So Lord Jesus, I pray that if somebody here is struggling with their faith, if they're struggling in the face of a trial, if they're struggling in the face of affliction, if they're struggling in some way with faith, maybe they need to come to know You for the first time. They would repent of their sins and stop living their life in sin in any way they choose and stop resting in the fact that they made a choice decades ago. But that they would today allow you to be the Lord of their life, trusting you, walking with you by faith. Lord Jesus, would you give them new life today? Others in the room, maybe they maybe they're in a straying place, maybe they're wandering. Would you call them back? Would you convict them of their sin? Would you give them grace and mercy? Others, we, we we're just walking in self-righteousness and maybe we're pridefully pointing at other people saying, eh, he's probably a weed. She's probably a weed. Would you forgive us, Lord, and, and help us to take the log out of our eye before we try to remove a speck from somebody else's? Would you give us grace for one another? Would you help us to walk with you in purity and holiness? And would you give us the endurance to finish well